Jagyana Timirandasya Jnananjana Salakaya Chaksurun Militam Jena Tasmai Sri Guravena Maha Sidantat Palasara Nityarasikam Hamsam Vilasatmakam Audaryakya Sudama Sevakaranam Vishram Vabhakti Pradam Yajnayukti Vichakshanantvagabido Vaisista Saktya Sada Vandeham Tripurari Namakayatim Sri Bhakti Vedantinam Vanchakalpatarubhyascha kripa sindhubhya evacha patitanam pavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namo namaha. Namo mahavaranyaya krishna prema pradayate krishnaya krishna chaitanya namne goratvise namaha. He krishna karuna sindhu dina bandhu jagatpate gopesha gopika kanta radha kanta namostate. Tapta kanchana gaurangi radhe vrinda vanishvari vrishabhanusute devi pranamami haritriye. Jaya Sri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Sri Advaita Garadhara Shivasani Gauravakta Vrinda. Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Hare. Hare Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare. Hare Nama Hare Nama Hare Nama Eva Kevalam. Kalaunastieva Nastieva Nastieva Gateranyatam. So, when in doubt, read chapter two, part two. Continuing in our discussion from last week, uh, when we talked about selected verses from the first quarter of the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. And one main theme in those uh, verses, one main solution that Krishna offered to us was uh, uh, when and if to lament. Lamentation definitely is something that we engage in a lot. It's almost like a national hobby here in Finland, but uh, turns out that uh, neither the physical nor the subtle body really are worth lamenting over since they're temporary anyway. And as the soul is eternal, no need to lament for it either. So basically no need to lament at all. Masucha, don't worry, as Krishna says. We do often see examples though of great devotees lamenting over their alleged lack of devotion. They obviously do have devotion, but in their humility, maybe don't feel like they do. I'm also thinking that they're doing this to show us uh, that this is something that actually is worth lamentation. Uh, Narottam Das Thakur, for instance, in his song Hari Hari Bipale, in the first song sings, O Lord Hari, I have spent my life uselessly. Having obtained a human birth and having not worshipped Radha and Krishna, I have knowingly drunk poison. And that's kind of often how our life is. We know that, that it's poison, but we grab it anyway and drink it down. So this time uh, we're going to talk about verses 19 to 37. And just like last time, I'll, I'll be going through a few verses that I've selected because they especially appeal to me. Uh, in this section, Krishna will talk a lot about the soul, the nature of the soul. And yes, there will be more solutions to, 
to life's problems, especially concerning the soul. Uh, poets and philosophers have kind of been pondering on this eternally. Who are we? Who am I? And the answer, as Krishna gives it to us, is soul. Boom. Problem solved. And while we're at it, uh, here's the second big question. What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? For that answer, we're going to take a quick detour to the Chaitanya Charitamrita, Maria Lila, uh, 20th chapter, 108th verse, uh, which even has an answer to that. It is the living entity's constitutional position to be an eternal servant of Krishna, because she is the marginal energy of Krishna and a manifestation simultaneously one with and different from the Lord. So now the only problem, of course, that instead of following these instructions, we have in the words of Narottamdas Thakur, not only drunk poison, but we're working on it. We're trying to uh, uh, develop a taste for, for nectar instead of poison. So in verse 219, Krishna directly starts speaking about the soul. Both one who thinks that the soul is the slayer and one who thinks that the soul is slain are confused. The soul neither slays nor is slain. This to me has always been one of the most confusing verses uh, of the Gita. Uh, is it okay to kill then? Uh, thinking of a person killing someone and claiming afterwards that they were under instructions to do so from God maybe makes us mainly think that the person is experiencing some kind of hallucinations. Uh, and certainly we would naturally feel that, that it would be best to proceed with caution in such a situation. Srila Prabhupada in his commentary has addressed this concern by saying that what is killed or is supposed to be killed is the body only. This, however, does not at all encourage killing of the body. Nor does the understanding that the living entity is not killed encourage animal slaughter. Killing the body of anyone without authority is abominable and is punishable by the law of the state as well as by the law of the Lord. So Prabhupada wanted to make obviously wanted to make extra clear that, that this isn't some kind of a license for us to, uh, to kill and blame God for it or to uh, point out that the body really wasn't killed. It's only under quite specific circumstances. I remember Guru Maharaj saying that, that if Krishna appears to us, uh, we should first run to, to our Guru and double check that it's really Krishna. So if Krishna appears and asks for something, uh, it's, we're not supposed to uh, blindly follow, not even Krishna. It's the guru we, we follow and, and we check first with the guru. 
In verse 22, Krishna continues to elaborate on, on the relationship between the soul and the body. Just as one dons new garments after discarding old ones, similarly, the self in embodied consciousness accepts new bodies after discarding the worn out ones. Guru Maharaj comments here that for elders such as Pisma, this may be a cause of rejoicing, not sorrow, for no one laments giving up an old garment in exchange for a new one. We might be attached to an old garment, but at the same time, on a rational level, we know that the new one will be an improvement. Bhisma is another interesting Mahabharata character who is mentioned in the Gita just kind of in passing, but uh, I found it really interesting reading about, more about him when, when I was studying the Mahabharata. He's not to be confused with Bhima, who had an incredible appetite and was one of Draupadi's husbands. Uh, at the Kurukshetra, Bhisma is fighting reluctantly uh, on the side of the Kauravas, uh, being Arjuna's opponents, uh, since uh, Bhisma loves the Pandavas as he's their great uncle. But he has to fight anyway and ends up getting pierced by innumerable arrows and patiently lying on them, waiting for the perfect moment to leave his body and even giving some instructions to the persons present at the battlefield before finally uh, giving up the old garment, the old body. Prabhupada in his commentary to this word, this verse uh, brings out the famous analogy of two birds sitting in a tree. Uh, the Vedas compare the soul and the super soul to two friendly birds sitting on the same tree. One of the birds, the individual soul, is eating the fruit of the tree, and the other bird is simply watching his friend. Of these two birds, although they are the same in quality, one is captivated by the fruits of the material tree, while the other is simply witnessing. Krishna is the witnessing bird, and Arjuna is the eating bird. Although they are friends, one is still the master and the other is the servant. Forgetfulness of this relationship by the soul is the cause of one's changing their position from one tree to the other or from one body to another. So Prabhupada wants to point out here that Krishna is present in every living being as Paramatma. I was inspired by the Wisdom of the Sages podcast and to start an experiment earlier this year, trying to, uh, trying to at least theoretically see Paramatma in everyone, to see something good and divine in every human being I, I met. On the Wisdom of the Sages podcast, the hosts often emphasize the importance of cultivating humility and, and love for all living beings. They were just actually talking about this today as well. Uh, about living in this world in a spiritualized way, which is really an important point that as devotees, we're not primarily striving for liberation, uh, salvation, moksha. Uh, through bhakti, any place can be transformed. Any situation uh, can be transformed into a spiritual realm. So our main interest is serving wherever we are, not coming to uh, attaining the 
pleasures of the heavenly planets. Speaking of humility, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says in the famous, famous third verse of Shikshastakam, Trinada Pissunichana, Tararivasa Hisnana, Amanina Manadena, Kirtaniya Sadahari. Being humble like a blade of grass, being more tolerant than a tree, expecting no admiration, yet showing others veneration, one should glorify Hari constantly. So I was doing this thought experiment, trying to show others respect, even just on a theoretical level in my mind. Even the big German car cutting in front of me on the freeway and forcing me to brake in my little French car. I get very easily annoyed by people who I feel are acting selfishly, who are acting as if rules don't apply to them, taking up more space than needed. And uh, this summer, as some of you know, Kamalaksha, my partner, and I were paddling uh, in the archipelago here in Finland, in Åland. Uh, and it was a beautiful, nice, peaceful environment. We would rarely see any boats or people in the outer, outer archipelago, but occasionally. Uh, we would need to get groceries, we would need to get a shower, and we would need to go to a big campground. And in getting closer to a, to a place with more people was always kind of a painful experience after all the uh, peacefulness of the, of the outer archipelago. We would suddenly encounter lots of people and noises and water scooters which drive me absolutely crazy you know those things that you drive on water and and splash and jump and and make a huge amount of noise disturb really disturbing the peace of the of the archipelago disturbing all the animals in the water and and there and the paddlers it's not easy to see God in everything and everything in God when someone's riding a water scooter way too close to my kayak, making tons of noise and, and waves and burning tons of gas. Krishna does say in the sixth chapter of the Gita, verse 30, for one who sees me everywhere and sees all things in me, I am never lost, nor is she ever lost to me. But I did certainly feel lost in my anger a lot of times encountering these noisemakers. But while we were paddling in more quiet areas, we were also listening to a lot of classes from this Tatovic series, and including um, the Sunday questions and answers sessions with Guru Maharaj. And in one of them uh, that we happened to be listening just at that time, uh, someone uh, was asking about how to relate to other people's shortcomings that we may find frustrating. Grumaraj pointed out that a lot of times what annoys us in others 
uh, is actually characteristics that we wish we didn't have ourselves. We see those things in others. We recognize that we have them buried in ourselves and we project sort of our frustration onto the other person. This is totally true in, in my case. I also like to drive fast, even though my car isn't quite as fast as those big German ones. And, and I'm sure that those water scooters are tons of fun, at least the few, first couple of times you, uh, you try them out. I want to believe that they get boring after a while, but, but the people, I have to admit that the people riding them don't look especially bored. So Grumaraj said that we should take these situations and as a learning opportunity, try to be grateful to the other person for demonstrating the unattractive nature of these characteristics. For me, this was super helpful because I was having a really hard time trying to see something good in everyone, trying to see the Paramatma in everyone's heart. But turning it around, uh, as Gurmaj instructed, uh, was much easier for me to grasp. To try to be grateful to these people as teachers, perhaps embarrassing themselves so I don't need to. So the following verse 223, Krishna continues talking about, about the soul. The soul cannot be pierced by weapons, burned by fire, moistened by water, or withered by wind. I'll, I've always liked this when I think it's fun, also fun to think of other examples of what can't hurt the soul. It can't be um, overcome with COVID. Uh, it doesn't get sweaty in the sun or cold in the rain. Of course, the point of the verse isn't really that, that these things would be made up, uh, but uh, Krishna is actually referring to various mystical weapons like fire, water, and wind weapons from ancient times. But I also find this verse quite comforting in fear, fearful situations. The world we live in is, is one of fear, and fear makes us do stupid, selfish, and mean things. It's also my fear of those uh, water scooters uh, tipping over my kayak that makes me so upset. Uh, through fear, we react in things that we often regret afterwards. Guru Maharaj has said that fear arises from misidentification with the body. The soul itself, itself obviously has nothing to fear. As we've learned, it's uh, invincible, it's eternal. Uh, it's only when we think that we are the body that we become fearful, because many uh, things obviously can hurt the body while we're still inhabiting it and even, even misidentifying ourselves with it. Uh, this also made me think of the six limbs of Saranagati, surrender, seeing Krishna as our only protector and relying on Krishna as our only provider. 
giving up things that are unfavorable for bhakti, embracing things that are favorable for bhakti, humility, realizing one's position as a tiny servant of God, and complete self-surrender, giving up one's independence. In such a uh, stage, on that stage, uh, we have nothing to fear because we're protected by the most powerful person there is. In verse 233, Krishna uh, describes the soul as eternal, indestructible, and changeless, among other things. Uh, and in Guru Maharaj's commentary, he mentions that Jiva Goswami explains the word, word Sarvagata in this verse as meaning dependent on God, who is everything. Everything is but God and his energies. Uh, we can depend exclusively on Krishna, which could be another way of, uh, of describing the Saranagati uh, or those two limbs of Saranagati of seeing Krishna as our protector and, and provider. There's this saying that I really like, Rake Krishna Mareke, Mare Krishna Rakeke. If Krishna desires to kill somebody, nobody can give them protection. And if he wants to save somebody, nobody can kill them. So what's there to fear? Uh, oftentimes, uh, Kamalaksha and I are asked when we go on these long paddling or cycling trips, if we're not afraid. But I strongly believe that if it's our time to die, we'll die here at our kitchen table. And if it's not, then we'll survive whatever the road or the ocean throws at us. This doesn't mean that we should be reckless. We need to take good care of the sarkadeya, not taking unnecessary risks, uh, because it, it isn't an ordinary body that we live in. It's a practitioner's body, sarkadeya, which is Krishna's property. So we should care for the body, remembering that it's not ours anymore. We've given it up to Krishna. Uh, and hurting the body uh, in that sense is like hurting Krishna. You can't love God and hate yourself because you're a part of God. And in the Western Gaudiya Vaishnava movement, we haven't always been so great at caring for the body or the mind. There's been a tendency to to neglect our material needs and especially psychological ones. Last week I mentioned some uh, Gera commentaries and another books that I've been reading preparing for these classes. And I also wanted to mention another book today, uh, Harmony and the Bhagavad Gita, which is a really delightful book by Visaka Prabhu. Uh, speaking about the Gita through her experiences of moving uh, to the countryside and living in close connection to the nature. It also includes a lot of realizations on living in a close community in that rural setting and how, how we sometimes have a hard time dealing with each other, even though we share common ideals not to then speak of people whose values are, are the complete opposite from ours. But I wanted to read a small uh, quote from 
from her book. Part of what I can do for God is to serve my physical body. Since God resides within it, it's a temple. To neglect the body and tend only to the spirit is foolishness, and to neglect the spirit and tend only to the body is ignorance. So without over-endeavor or over-indulgence, I meet the needs of my body, my mind, and me, a jivatma, and so doing, I'm progressively released from the upheavals of imbalance. And really, in a lot of ways, it is all about balance, finding that uh, place that's uh, where we can be happy, uh, balanced, but also uh, putting enough effort into our spiritual practice that there will be results. Not easy to find, but but that's I feel that's also why we have our community to help us out. And this goes both ways, of course, not just caring for ourselves, but caring for everyone else as well. Even if they're not devotees now, they have the potential to become one. I think it's Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who said that we shouldn't judge a person by their past or even their present, but by their future. Everyone is a potential sadaka, uh, and we should earn the side of caution in caring for them and respecting them. Everyone, every living being is by their nature Satchidananda, eternal, full of knowledge and bliss, even if it's hidden under many, many layers and invisible to, to us. Further on in the in chapter six of the Gita, in, in verse 32, Krishna will go as far as to say, the yogi who measures the pain and pleasure of others as if it were her own, is considered to be the best of all. So compassion definitely is a big uh, theme uh, on this path and something that, that we need to, need to make sure that, that we are uh, working on while working on, on ourselves. Urmaj often talks about horizontal and vertical growth uh, and maybe someone, maybe it's the horizontal growth that someone needs help with right now. I was listening to uh, Namaras Prabhu's late morning program podcast, and he was interviewing Ramboru Prabhu, and she said something like, instead of preaching centers, we should have listening centers to actually hear what's going on in people's lives and, and listen to what they actually need. And this to me was mind blowing because I'm the kind of a best servicer who always thinks that I, I know better what people should be doing and even thinking. I love to give people unsolicited advice. And, uh, and I recognize that I, I need to be a better listener in, able, in order to be able to speak to people about bhakti in a way that they can relate to. But I will continue preaching in any case, because I firmly believe that bhakti is for everyone and it has the solutions for everyone in one way or the other. And ultimately, after we've dealt with the horizontal growth questions, bhakti is the solution to the big questions, uh, the really, really big ones that 
we're all going to face one day. We just need to get the small questions out of the way first. Some time ago, I was also interviewed on a podcast for the Finnish uh, radio for the National Broadcasting Company. It was a program about meditation. And uh, there were two of us being interviewed. The other person was a Finnish author who's written a book on secular meditation. He felt that meditation should be stripped of the spiritual uh, dimension and and um, even said that uh, the guru, the concept of a guru doesn't work here in the West because we are, we have this uh, tradition of being independent and individualistic and you can't impose a foreign tradition like having a guru onto ours. He had practiced some kind of a mindfulness style meditation for quite some time and, and the way he talked about it, he made it sound so difficult. And he even said that, that it isn't for everyone, that meditation isn't for everyone. You need to have a certain type of psychological setup to be able to meditate. So as you can imagine, I was trying to be polite and civilized, but I was secretly sort of biting my tongue not to start yelling at him because I basically disagreed with everything that he said. I somehow managed to uh, compose myself and, and somewhat politely say that, that I do disagree and that mantra meditation, the type that we do, is something anyone can do in any situation without any qualification or former knowledge of the tradition. I mean, we all have this experience. We've seen, if not uh, with our own eyes, then through uh, videos or photos, uh, random people just wandering into a, a Rathayatra procession or, or joining uh, the devotees who are out uh, on Harinam and, and just bursting out in song and dance. Maybe not in a super serious way, but still joining in, in song meditation in Kirtan, at least for a moment. Anyone can do that. There's no uh, there's no test that you need to take or, or no uh, books that you need to read. By reading, of course, we, and studying, we will, of course, uh, be able to keep it up longer. But that like initial burst of joy that a lot of us have experienced firsthand or, or to others, of just throwing yourself into the, into the kirtan, into the meditation of the holy names. I, I honestly felt bad for this guy not having that experience and wanting to shut it out in his great fear of gurus and spiritual traditions. 
And as you know, our scripture says that even animals and plants can benefit from hearing the holy names. So it really doesn't matter what kind of a setup you have, what kind of a physical or subtle body. Further on to verse 226, Krishna says, O mighty armed one, even if you think that the self is continually born, and continually dies, you still have no reason to lament for it. So here Krishna is kind of playing the devil's advocate, momentarily presenting an atheist worldview. What's the point of lamenting then, if we're all just some kind of fancy computers or robots that get turned on for a while and, and then turned off? Uh, again, in his commentary, talks about the Dharma of the warrior here, and that we discussed in more length uh, last week. Uh, he quotes uh, Srimad Bhagavatam, 10th canto, uh, chapter 54, verse 40. The code of sacred beautiful warriors established by Lord Brahma enjoins that one may have to kill even one's own brother. That indeed is the most dreadful law. Dreadful it is. And I think I mentioned last week my own shock uh, reading the Gita for the first time and realizing in the beginning of chapter two that Krishna wasn't going to agree with Arjuna and tell him to put down his bow and, and peacefully meditate instead of this horrendous killing. Of course, Krishna talks here about righteous killing. Like Prabhupada pointing out, pointed out in his commentary earlier, this isn't a license for anyone to just kill anything at any moment they feel like it. I felt that reading the Mahabharata uh, really revealed to me the full scope of the crimes of the Kauravas. If we're only reading the Gita, it might feel a little bit unreasonable, but what Krishna is asking Arjuna to, to do. I sometimes listen to this philosophy podcast where they, I felt, had a very superficial understanding of the Gita saying that because of some kind of traditions, apparently it's okay to kill, uh, sort of uh, seeming not to realize the bigger picture. And I think that's uh, something that might easily happen if you're not reading the Gita under the guidance of someone you trust. But really when you put it in context of the past wrongs committed by, by the Kauravas, uh, by Arjuna's opponents, it starts to make so much sense that this, this killing would be righteous. This also made me think of, uh, of the life of an artist. Like I said last week, I strongly feel that my dharma is to be an artist, even though it's not always the easiest path. Sometimes the artist also has to make difficult choices. And in order to make great art, uh, many feelings have been hurt. Many family members have been upset 
over things revealed by the artist. It's just a part of the job. Sometimes in order to achieve something great, we need to step on some toes. Verse 227, death is certain for all to take birth. Birth is just a certain for all who die. Therefore, do not lament in matters like this, which are unavoidable. This is kind of harsh, but it's true. We live on the planet of death, Martialoka. And no matter how, how much we try to distract ourselves with cute Instagram, videos of Siberian husky puppies that are just learning to howl, just as a theoretical example here. Uh, we won't be able to ever really completely drown the little voice inside our heads, reminding us that death is coming for all of us. And I find comfort in the fact that Krishna doesn't sugarcoat things. Spirituality doesn't mean running away from life's problems as it's often uh, falsely described or accused of. It actually means facing them head on, fearlessly. Govindadas Kaviraj sings Pajahuremana Sri Nanda Nandana Abhaya Charanaravinda Re. Oh mind, just worship the lotus feet of the son of Nanda, which make one fearless. In verse 229, Krishna again speaks of the soul as being something, something not of this world. Some see the self as being a wonder, others proclaim it to be a wonder, while still others hear of it as a wonder, yet even after hearing of it, none can fathom it. It certainly isn't easy to understand the nature of something that's beginningless and eternal because we live in a world where we measured everything in terms of linear time and monetary value. Reading this verse now made me think of the debate on the origins of the jiva and the concept of anadi karma, beginningless karma, which Padmanabha Maharaj recently discussed on Namaraha Prabhu's podcast, uh, which I would highly recommend to everyone. Even though Maharaj said that these topics don't necessarily need to be studied by everyone, I would still say that at least take the time to, to listen to the podcast and, and try to grasp it, at least on a theoretical level. Even though beginningless Karma is hard for us to grasp because we see so many apparent beginnings and ends around us, birth and death, and life kind of looks linear to us, maybe of also because we're products of this society so steeped in the linear worldview. But at the same time, if we look at nature and allow it, it to teach us about the nature of life, like the story of the 24 gurus in the 11th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam in the Uddhava Gita section which corresponds with Bhagavad Gita. A really, really nice uh, part of the Bhagavatam to, to study. If we look at nature the way 
described in the story of the 24 gurus, we can see all these beginningless and endless cycles of life. The seasons change and matter transforms, uh, leaves fall from the tree and, and you know, new trees will grow. Uh, and through the philosophy of the Gita, we can start to see what's behind all this. In verses 233 and 34, Krishna warns Arjuna what's what'll happen if he escapes his duty. However, if you do not fight in this righteous war, having avoided your own dharma as a warrior, you will incur evil and lose your reputation. People will always speak of your infamy, and for a respectable person, dishonor is worse than death. Like I said last time, these uh, verses where Krishna talks about dishonor or uh, people speaking ill of Arjuna seem to me a little bit uh, ridiculous. Like, why should we care so much about what other people think? Uh, isn't it the part of the package kind of, of being a Gaudiya Vaishnav that we're going to seem a little bit weird to others? and Striving for normality will never find happiness because we'll, we're just going to be trying to please others. Later on in chapter 6, verse 7, Krishna will actually say that the person who's conquered the mind and is thus peaceful doesn't care about their reputation, that for them honor and dishonor are the same. But that's a person who's conquered their mind. And obviously, we're not there yet. And in this, uh, at this point, uh, Arjun's also put under illusion, and Krishna's still speaking to him from a more socio-religious angle, as opposed to a purely spiritual one. And I think that we can see here that Krishna is trying to convince Arjuna by bringing out different points of view both philosophical and socio-religious, in order to convince him. Kind of like uh, we can see in Srimad Bhagavatam that, that there are beautiful descriptions of Goloka Vrindavan and terrible descriptions of hellish planets. So we're, scripture is trying to, in some ways, uh, bring us in, but also to push us out of our materialistic way of thinking. Guru Maharaj talks about negative and positive impetus, different uh, motivations we might have for taking up spiritual practice, for applying ourselves in our practice. In verse 237, uh, Krishna, declares, O son of Kunti, either you will die in battle and go to heaven, or having won the battle, you will enjoy the earth. Therefore, stand with resolve and fight. So again, Krishna tells Arjun to fight. We ended last week's talk with, uh, with Krishna telling Arjun to fight. And again, we're here. Stand with resolve, fight. And that, isn't that how it is on the 
spiritual path. We fall and we get up and then we fall again. Pick up the fight where we left off. But if we keep fighting our addiction to illusion uh, and we have all these examples of people around us who have conquered it, who have seen the reality behind illusion, then gradually we'll also get there. I also found it interesting that in this verse, uh, Krishna calls Arjuna son of Kunti. Like I said last time, there's a lot of information packed into the choice of words, obviously levels that I can't even begin to understand, not speaking Sanskrit, but just reading the commentaries and uh, finding all these points there about the uh, choice of names that are being used and other expressions. There are so many things to discover. Uh, so Kunti uh, was a queen who faced terrible misfortunes, but instead of trying to avoid suffering, she prays to Krishna in the famous words from the first canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, verse 25. I wish that all those calamities would happen again and again, so that we could see you again and again. For seeing you means that we will no longer see repeated births and deaths. So perhaps Krishna is subtly reminding Arjun here of his mother's great devotion, great bhakti. Like, come on, your mother didn't hide from calamity. Your mother wasn't asking to, to go to the heavenly planets to enjoy. Neither should you. Don't be a coward. Be more like your mom. So this is where I'm going to end today. And next week, we also have a really exciting section coming up in the second chapter of the Gita. Uh, namely verses 40 to 45, which according to Vishwana Chakrati Thakur describe bhakti. So we're going to uh, uncover that. Uh, and there's other good stuff as well, like working without attachment to the results. So lots of uh, solutions to more of life's endless problems. Stay tuned. And if you have any questions or comments, about today's talk, I'd love to hear them now. I'm gonna allow you all to unmute yourselves if you feel like it. Yes, I can. Sorry. Uh, yes, yes, sorry about that. Yeah.
Mm, could you ask her maybe to specify what she means by the difference between symbolism and allegory? Thank you. I'm sorry, I can't hear you right now. Yes. Ah, okay, I think I understand now. I've never thought about it that way, to be honest. I've thought about it more just on the two levels of uh, allegory and Lila. So I, I'll have to give some thought to, to the level of symbolism and return to that next week. But uh, just speaking from my own experience, I've found that the allegorical lila is easier to has been easier for me to approach in the beginning when the uh, when I didn't really have a taste for the lilas yet. It was easier to sort of approach the whole thing as a theoretical or philosophical construction and see see the allegorical wisdoms uh, included in the lilas. And later on, I've found that as taste develops and also mainly through, that has happened through Sadhu Sangha, spending time with people who have, who are further on the path and who have the taste for the lilas, I've also, felt some of their enthusiasm rubbing onto me. And, and in that sense, the Lilas have also become dear to me and, and I've learned to, uh, to sort of appreciate them as, as the ultimate reality and not just allegories for 
something that uh, that could be seen as a as just sort of an intellectual exercise. But I like I think I said last week, I like to think that both can exist simultaneously and and we can maybe use both ways of speaking about the Leela depending on who we're speaking to and and in which situation bring out these different points to attract people to bhakti. I hope that somehow answers the question. Yes. Thank you very, very much. Okay. Thank you. Any other thoughts or questions? If not, you can always go and comment on the recordings on Facebook and YouTube or write me if there's something that that you'd like to share privately. And uh, I'll see you next week. Thank you so much and happy Radhastami. Shangi Devidasi ki. Jai. 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 Sri Sri Guru Gauranga ki. Jai.